Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Today's podcast concerns the Alberta tar sands and its prolific human rights and environmental footprint with a particular focus on its impact on Canada's First Nations. Canada contains the world's largest known deposit of bitumen, the Athabasca deposit. It spans an area roughly the size of Florida across boreal forest, rivers and lakes and largely lies on Indigenous lands. It is North America's biggest contributor to climate change and is causing the world's second fastest rate of deforestation. This type of oil extraction and processing is very energy and water intensive and produces toxic byproducts that must be stored and may be subject to leaks. It is polluting the surrounding air and causing illnesses in humans and animals, including being linked to an incidence in rare bile duct disease. The tar sands extraction and processing and its ancillary development has completely changed the landscape of the Beaver Lake Cree First Nation and if unchecked will render their treaty rights, which are guaranteed under the Canadian Constitution, meaningless. There has been a sharp increase in the number of treaty rights and Aboriginal title cases brought by First Nations in Canada as the tar sands and its pipelines, which may now likely include the Kinder Morgan and Keystone pipelines, that will transport the oil to British Columbia and the Gulf of Mexico respectively for export, traverse and imperil Indigenous lands. Additionally, as the Conservative Harper government gutted federal environmental laws, First Nation matters have become the main legal avenue for claims against environmentally disastrous projects. I spoke with Robert James and Kerry Brooks, lawyers from JFK Law in British Columbia, who are fighting these pestilent projects on behalf of numerous First Nations, including the Beaver Lake Cree, the Mikasu, and the Kitakla First Nations, on these issues and more. Welcome to Gravity, Robert and Kerry. Thank you. Nice to be speaking to you. So, apart from the many important matters that you have, you are representing the Beaver Lake Cree Nation in their titanic fight against the world's possibly largest human-made structure and the most environmentally disastrous, the Alberta tar sands. May you please explain to our audience they may not be so well-versed in this type of crude oil extraction that's so energy and water intensive as to what the Alberta tar sands are. The Alberta tar sands, and they also extend over to Saskatchewan, are large bodies of bitumen, um, which are essentially, if you think of asphalt, you have a pretty good picture of what it's like. So these are heavy, hardened uh, bodies consisting of oil, uh, crude oil that's embedded in sand. Um, naturally, these either take the form of a very tarry-like substance or actually quite a hard substance, depending on the temperature. Um, Starting in the 1970s, the government of Canada, the government of Alberta, together with a number of industrial um, agencies, uh, started trying to figure out how to extract uh, bitumen and turn it into oil. And essentially, there are two large approaches to this. One is the traditional approach, which are the, the classic pictures that you see of the very large um, quarries, essentially, uh, in which the, the, the surface of the boreal forest is strip mined and then uh, large vehicles are used to take out large hard chunks of bitumen and then this is processed, melted down, um, it, it's essentially the sand is separated and then it's diluted and shipped off by pipeline. Now this requires a huge amount of water in the heating and separation process and then also produces a lot of effluent that flows off, which then has to be stored for, you know, what is likely going to be on the order of a century to two, um, 
in, in terms of large holding ponds of the, the discharged substances that includes the sand, the water that was used, etc. Uh, more recently, as they've tried to access deeper bitumen deposits, they've been used what are called steam-assisted gravity, and I forgot what it stands for, it's SAG-D um, production, which essentially involves uh, melting uh, the bitumen underground by pumping heated water into the ground in pipes and then extracting the melted bitumen out through pipes and then processing much the same way as before. So it doesn't create the open quarries, but there's a huge amount of extraction of underground substance. Uh, and additionally, as you can imagine, um, you know, just picture trying to, to melt asphalt that are that's meters thick. I mean, the, the, the energy consumption is incredible at these, these facilities, mm-hmm. and they produce this huge amount of wastewater. Um, but to give you a sense of how much energy is used, for one project, they were actually considering building a nuclear plant just to generate electricity to heat this, the water that would be used to uh, generate the steam to melt the bitumen. We've talked about how much water uh, goes into this, and I, I believe uh, one barrel of oil takes five barrels of water. Is that correct? Well, there's, there's different numbers, but there's very large numbers, very large amounts of water that are used, and it, and it varies from project to project. Certainly the steam-assisted um, processes use a lot of water. And you also mentioned the cutting down of the boreal forest. How effective is this uh, deforestation in the area? Well, you can't just look at the projects in that respect. Is that What has to be recognized is that, that first of all, the, the, the quarries in that system are, are quite large, but these projects carry with them a huge amount of ancillary development. There's roads that need to be developed. There's pipelines that have to be laid. Um, you know, for SAG-D, there's the, essentially the injection sites that had to be built. There are the, the lands that have to be cleared for the purposes of, of, um, of building the separation facilities. Um, th- there has to be land cleared for the purposes of storing the effluent that's produced um, and, and and all of this uses a tremendous amount of land, not to mention that um, you know these building these projects has used has required a large number of people to come into the boreal forest, and there's been a huge amount of induced development that's gone along with this. I, I mean, the towns of Fort McMurray, Fort Mackay, uh, have grown tremendously. There's been a huge demand for spaces for marshalling yards for equipment storage, uh, which have just used up. A, a, a tremendous amount of forested land. So what's the environmental and the climate footprint of this immense project? You have to look at this at, at a couple of different layers. Um, at, 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 at the local layer, there is, there's a whole host of obvious environmental effects. So there is the land clearing, um, there is the, there's the contamination of waters, um, there is the use of water, um, and then there are the, the the effects that come from having the peop, having so many new people come into the area, who hunt and who use land themselves, and who um, you know require housing and and all the other things that come with areas becoming settled lands. Um, and, and so those kind of immediate impacts are felt around the area and are quite significant. You know, particularly for people like our clients who themselves hunt and fish and rely on the natural resources in the area. But but then you have these increasing secondary effects. And, and then, of course, ultimately, the, the largest effect that you have is that both 
in terms of the amount of energy that has to be used to get the bitumen out of the ground, and and also in terms of the amount of energy that has to be used in processing it, given that it is not exactly the sweetest oil in the world, um, there is an immense amount of of carbon production of that that goes with this, and um, that is a um, you know those, those those effects are felt worldwide. But but and you know and Carrie can certainly speak speak very directly to this. But you, you can't lose sight of the fact that in many cases there are sensitive habitats in these areas, which are very directly impacted by the construction of these plants. There are um, herds and 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 species that are are displaced or moved, and you know we fear in some cases may be extirpated, and the, the socioeconomic effects that just come with suddenly bringing these huge Western populations into areas that were largely still indigenous into the 1970s and early 80s, um, you know, has been, ha- has been tremendous, tremendously negative for the most part. And what's the risk of spillage from these tanks? You said they had to store it for about 200 years. Well, the, the, it's not so much, they're not stored in tanks, they're stored in large settling ponds, essentially. And, you know, there's a huge debate about how stable those ponds are. So, so there's one problem that arises, just that, um, you know, there have been situations where whole flocks of, of migratory birds have settled on these ponds and have been killed. But there are real serious doubts about whether these, these, um, these ponds are effective at actually keeping uh, the effluent in. Um, there's been real concerns about contamination of groundwater, and uh, you know, just as recently, you've seen the danger of dam failure uh, in the uh, United States. I mean, there is a concern that uh, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years from now, um, you will be seeing similar failures up here, which would be catastrophic. And was there a, a leak at Cold Lake that's been ongoing for months and has only decreased due to the cold weather there? There's certainly been a major pipeline leak at Cold Lake. And that's been an ongoing uh, problem. So what are the health effects of this miasmic project that's obviously also affecting the water? Has there been, have there been any uh, health effects on the surrounding communities? Well, there have been you know, some studies that have suggested that there's been significant increases in cancer rates in the area. Um, and uh, there's been certainly a significant increase in air pollution. Um, there has been... They're what I would call secondary changes that come with the fact that as people are unable to, and I think Carrie could expand on this, as people are unable to use the foods that they formerly used, either because they're concerned about contamination or because there's been actual contamination or because species have been displaced, um, you, you see very serious health effects flowing from the changes in people's diet and the adoption of a more sedentary lifestyle. I mean, so, so for example, the Athabasca River flows up into um, a number of, of major lakes, including the lake that, that Mikasu is situated on. And um, there are real concerns based on a number of scientific studies and, and based upon the actual observations of the people that, for example, the fish are no longer safe to eat. So people have to substitute other things into their diets, and often those are nowhere near as healthy as what people have been experiencing in the past. 
Carrie, is there anything that you'd like to add to that point? Um, and I think, yeah, no, I think that you described those physical health effects really well. I guess I would just add to that from the clients that we work with, one of the health impacts that we hear expressed is the is the psychological and mental health impacts from being alienated from the land, from seeing this changing landscape, um, from what was at one time very familiar to the community where the community would be out on the land often and eating their traditional foods, feeling confident about the health of their environment, passing down knowledge and place names. Um, And that loss has created a real alienation from the environment, which what we hear from our clients creates all sorts of mental health uh, issues in the community. May you explain also the the treaty rights that the Beaver Lake Cree Nation have to this land that's impacted by this project and briefly also explain the Canadian constitutional context as it applies to treaty rights of First Nations and your legal claims in this case. Right. So, and you referred to, I'll just explain to your listeners because you referred to this case that the Beaver Lake Cree Nation has brought forward. So um, Beaver Lake Cree has brought um, a challenge uh, and and a treaty infringement action. And so it is useful before we talk about that case, I think, to describe generally um, some some concepts of Aboriginal rights and treaty rights and, and constitutional law in Canada for your listeners who might not be familiar. Um, with that legal framework. So in Canada, Aboriginal people have special rights under our Constitution, uh, and these rights arise from what our Supreme Court, our top court, has described as really a simple fact that when the Europeans arrived in North America, Aboriginal people were already living here in communities on the land, participating in distinctive cultures, and they had done so for centuries. And so our courts say that it's that fact above any other that separates Aboriginal people from any other minority group in Canada, and so it mandates their special legal status. So uh, Indigenous people in Canada have rights that are protected under our Constitution. It's Section 35, which recognizes and affirms the existence of Aboriginal and treaty rights. Uh, And this, of course, is significant because Canada's constitutions are the supreme law of Canada, and so they override any other laws, and government conduct can't unjustifiably infringe constitutional rights. And that's an important concept, too, in in understanding what these cases are about, because our courts have said, well, Aboriginal rights are constitutional rights, they're not absolute So they can be infringed by the Crown, but the Crown has to justify that infringement. So it has to have a compelling objective for the infringement and has to balance that power with fiduciary duties. And there's other aspects of the infringement test, justification test as well. But the courts have made it clear that this is a very heavy burden on the Crown. So the other question that you asked was about the distinction uh, in in treaty rights and what treaty rights are. And so uh, that requires a little bit of of history. Um, Some of the First Nations in Canada signed a treaty with the Crown, and this was required by a British document called the Royal Proclamation in 1763, and it said British settlers had to address the existing Aboriginal rights and title before they could continue to settle. 
And so to sort of further this obligation, Canada signed a number of treaties, which are literally called the numbered treaties, 1 to 11, uh, with First Nations between sort of 1870 and uh, sort of 19, 1920s, approximately. Most of them were signed across Canada, except in British Columbia. Um, it's, there were some treaties that extended to British Columbia, but for the most part, um, there weren't treaties in British Columbia. Um, and so those number treaties are referred to as the historic treaties. And what happened in B.C. was the politicians here took the view that Aboriginal rights were not going to be uh, a government priority, that the Crown sovereignty had extinguished any existing Aboriginal rights and they didn't need to deal with them. And our top court has since corrected that assumption and said Aboriginal title does continue to exist in B.C. And it was a result of that that, the, that, the, that Canada... Um, with the province, uh, established a comprehensive claims resolution process and began to negotiate what are referred to as the modern treaties with uh, some of the First Nations in B.C. So the situation in Canada is that some nations have rights under the treaty um, and others uh, assert Aboriginal uh, rights and title. And for Beaver Cree, uh, Beaver Lake Cree Nation, they are the signatory to a historic treaty, Treaty 6. Uh, and that treaty was signed in 1876, and it includes, the, the, these number of trees include massive areas. And Treaty 6 encompasses mostly the sort of central areas in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and Beaver Lake's territory actually straddles the, the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's near a place called and it's about 40,000 square kilometers. So the rights under the treaty, uh, in order to determine what the rights are, you look to the treaty document, the oral promises that were made, and try to discern what the intentions of the parties were. But under, the, under Treaty 6, the, it states that the signatory First Nations will surrender their land rights in exchange for some benefits that they'll get from the Crown. And one of them is that, in Beaver Lake's case, or the case of Treaty 6, that the nation could maintain its way of life, that they could continue to pursue their advocations of hunting and fishing. Uh, and then there's an exception to that, which says, except if the Crown... Um, wants to take up the land for certain purposes like settlement or mining, forestry activities, and that's referred to the taking up clause, and that's really a key aspect of, of the Beaver Lake case. So is the crux of the question to what extent does the cumulative impact of the development render, essentially render the treaty rights meaningless? Yeah, I think that's well well said. So basically the case, so Beaver Lake brought this case actually quite a number of years ago now, 2008, um, and, it, and it is a novel case. It is dealing with that question um, that at what point in time Canada can, we know that Canada uh, and the government of the Crown can take up land for those purposes, um, but it will come a time when the interference with the way of life has gotten uh, so difficult and has so significantly affected the the nation that the treaty uh, promise is no longer um, is no longer being honored, and so the case in this case is really 
you know, Beaver Lake says that for, for Beaver Lake to maintain its way of life, to meaningfully exercise its rights, it needs a certain quality and quantity of land and resources in its traditional territory. And the Crown has, through, as you described, the cumulative effect of these land authorizations, adversely affected those land and resources to the point where they, Beaver Lake can't meaningfully exercise its right anymore. So it's really about what is the nature and the scope of the treaty right and what limits are there on the Crown's ability to, to take up that land. Not about any one project, as you point out, but the effect of all of the activities um, in the landscape on the cumulative effect on their way of life. And be, what Beaver Lake really wants from this case is it wants, the gov- it wants a declaration, first of all, that it does have the treaty rights that it claims, that it does ha- there is a promise to a way of life, um, and, and that there's been so much authorization of development in its traditional territory that that right's been infringed, and then it seeks an order that the court address that infringement and look for ways to basically restore its traditional territory and that it compensate the nation for that infringement. Just to add to what Carrie said there, one of the great challenges in these cases is that if you just pick up the treaty and read it, what it looks like, and in the past the government always argued this, is that it looks like they're just saying, we promise you can hunt and fish until we take the land away from you. Um, But when you read what was actually said at the treaty talks, and, and there are very careful records that were kept of these treaty talks, the government said something very different. They made real promises about being able to keep their way of life. And, and in fact, you know, rather shockingly, at the Treaty 6 negotiations, they actually said, you know, we're really taking nothing away from you. And so, you know, the things the courts have been struggling with is that, you know, there's obviously real economic pressures to develop land and open up land. Uh, there's obviously real historical pressures to recognize the government's power to settle the lands. But but that's very hard to square with the the promises that were made at the treaties, that the that the concerns that the First Nations expressed about trying to protect their way of life, and, and not in a simple way, but being able to keep their communities together, to be able to enjoy the benefits of of civilization in in the to use the Western term for that, and and at the same time not have to be assimilated into the settler culture, and so. Um, you, you know, th- this case is really about: is there, you know, where is the line where you can say that, you know, that once you've had enough towns, farms, roads, wells, pipelines, uh, mines, forestry activities, uh, and now oil sands projects, that that you've crossed the line and and you are literally taking away these people's way of lives. So as the case continues and you've been allowed to now take it to trial, and I understand that uh, both the Alberta provincial government and the Canadian federal government have tried every procedural uh, trick in the book, every substantive argument to dismiss this case since you filed it in 2008. Now, is this a tactic of theirs to, um, to exasperate your clients, to exhaust them and have them voluntarily dismiss this case, say, by running out of funds for costs. Well, yeah, I think you've identified a real concern that arises for First Nations bringing these cases forward. There's this procedural sort of wrangling that can really impede 
access to justice, and certainly this case has seen its um, more than its fair share of that. So it does have quite an involved procedural history, um, and I think you know our clients would agree with your characterization that the defendants have relied heavily on various procedural strategies to um, that has created sort of delay and expense for Beaver Lake. Just just to, to highlight that 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 history. Um, the claim was filed in 2008, and then Canada and Alberta made a number of demands for particulars. They wanted more information about what was being pled. They then brought a motion to strike uh, the case in its entirety on the basis that it was an abusive process, that it wasn't uh, judiciable, and they lost that application with a small exception that um, Beaver Lake's a request that certain crown authorizations that had already been made be revoked. So that relief was struck. But otherwise, the court said, the Alberta's Court of Queen Bench said this case should go forward. Uh, then the government's appealed that decision. They took it to the Alberta Court of Appeal, again, arguing that the claim was frivolous, it was improper, it was an abusive process. And in 2013, the Court of Appeal dismissed their appeals again and said, no, this claim needs to, can proceed. And and uh, gave some sort of strong wording that the parties need to work together to move this forward. So the courts have confirmed that the Beaver Lake can litigate these issues. Um, since that court of appeal decision, uh, there's been we're now into this discovery process where uh, documents have to be exchanged and where there can be questioning um, of representatives of the parties. And so uh, again, you know, we, from Beaver Lake's perspective, are facing similar arguments from the defendants about the case is so complicated and difficult and unmanageable and, and impossible to move forward. So we continue to push and work with the work with the parties to develop pl disclosure plans and questioning plans. But it certainly, I think you identified something. It's certainly difficult for our clients that there's not a greater sort of willingness to. Uh, from the defendants to find solutions to make this case manageable and 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 move it forward. And our clients, they want to see the matter adjudicated on its merits. They don't want to get bogged down in these pretrial procedures that make it, as you say, very difficult, if not impossible, uh, for them to access justice. I mean, there is. I have to uh, acknowledge here. There's an organization called Raven Trust which is a group specifically established um, to try to, as they describe it, level the playing field for First Nations who are taking these kinds of cases forward and turning to the courts to seek justice and legal remedies for infringements of their rights. And so they, they um, provide sort of a fundraising service. And so really, uh, you know, but for the donations that they've been able to secure, um, you know, it's, this case would be very challenging for the nation to push it forward. And so that support has literally kept this case alive. Uh, and we will be linking to Raven on our website for anybody interested to help with the funds for this case to move forward. But as this case is moving forward and uh, in this immense discovery process that you are facing, and I'm sure you're also heavily reliant on uh, the government releasing records and with respect to this discovery, and maybe they wouldn't be uh, so cooperative in that regard, I, I would like your opinion on that too. But what I'm quite concerned about is that as this case continues, 
the operations have been escalating and they've been escalating at a rapid rate. I believe that uh, we're looking at next year 3 million barrels to go out daily on an operational basis. Um, how is this going to affect Discovery? And, and moreover, is there a chance to obtain interim injunctive relief by claiming that this this escalation of operations would cause irreparable injury and therefore, even if your clients were successful, there would be no relief left for them because of this escalation. I think that, you know, those are, again, all really good points. Like this litigation, as it continues to um, get sort of dragged out over time, we do see the development continuing, which is, uh, you know, disconcerting, obviously, for our clients who have already signaled to the government and brought legal action to try to seek remedies to stop development without their input, without their participation, without their consent. So, you know, it's definitely a concern and speaks to the urgency and need to be able to push the litigation forward and not get bogged down on all of these pretrial procedures, which can really derail things. Um, So, you know, you, you mentioned injunctive relief. Like, there's a couple options that Beaver Lake has to try to manage the issues that it's raising in in their in their um, claims, so obviously injunctive relief is is one uh, one option that the nation could use. The other is to continue to seek um, to engage the government on land use planning and to participate in those activities and to require the government to develop the thresholds and indicators that are relevant for the exercise of their rights and have those incorporated into decision-making around what authorization should be approved. And so, so far, Beaver Lake has really been focusing its efforts on pushing the government in that direction. Um, you know, there is uh, injunction applications are difficult. They're, co- they're again, extremely costly. Um, you know, oftentimes you're dealing with, you're building up an injunction application that can be um, quite extensive. Um, you know, interestingly, another there is another First Nation that has a, brought a similar claim to Beaver Lake recently, Blueberry River First Nation, and they did bring an injunction. Um, and uh, as part of their cumulative effects infringement action, and the court at that time denied their application and um, said they needed, you know, they brought an injunction to um, enjoin certain approvals, and the court said because it was a cumulative effects case that slowing down development in, on certain, in certain areas wouldn't achieve the result that they needed or that they were looking for that addressed the merits of their claim, and so they lost that application. Now, they've since, I understand, brought another application to, to literally try to halt development in the entire territory. Um, I don't know the court has not come down with a decision on that yet, so that's certainly something that will be of interest to Beaver Lake if they're successful, but those are such huge investments as well uh, that you could lose, and and Beaver Lake really wants to, you know, focus on getting to the merits of their claim just as quickly as possible and pushing all the resources there so that they can have a final determination on the issue. Robert, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think that in some ways um, the, the downturn in the oil industry has helped, has given a bit of breathing room in Beaver Lake's particular territory. I mean, in Mikasu, it's a different story where there's been projects underway. 
um, you know, these projects are quite costly, and so while the price of oil has been down, that's given us a bit of breathing room to try to get the push case pushed to its merits. I mean, that's you know, the message that's come from the courts around these treaty rights cases is that, that they really do want to look at the big picture. They don't want to focus on a specific project or a specific permit. And, um, you know, so it's really the question of how to push this um, as fast and as vigorously as possible. And, and sometimes it feels a bit like trying to push a body of molasses uphill. Um, but, but I think we're making progress. But, but it, is, it is a huge fight. Now, I do want to move to a specific project, Enbridge's Northern Gateway Pipeline. This pipeline is meant to bypass the Keystone Pipeline, and, but, but it connects to the Alberta Tar Sands pits because it, it physically connects to the Alberta Tar Sands and takes the crude oil to British Columbia. Now, you represent the Gitakla? Gitakla. The Gitakla. And, um, and they are uh, fighting this pipeline. And if you could just explain to our audience what the environmental impact of this pipeline, if it were made, would be on the flora and fauna, including on the most impressive species, the orca that inhabit the waters of British Columbia, and the cultural impact on the Gitakla Nation. And what is the current status of the case? So the Enbridge pipeline, the Northern Gateway pipeline, is one of a, a number of pipelines that have been planned to get larger volumes of what's called diluted bitumen, so bitumen that has been partially processed and then diluted uh, with, with, with solvents out to market. So obviously, you know, in the United States, there's the Keystone Pipeline, um, which is another pipeline connecting the, the tar sands to Hardesty and then down to, uh, uh, to the various refining facilities on the Gulf Coast. Uh, there's the, the lines, the Energy East, which is intended to take bitumen to the east, and then there are then there was the Enbridge pipeline, and I'm speaking in the past tense as, as Gitgatla and other nations successfully fought that pipeline, and then the um, the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain pipeline, which essentially would take uh, diluted bitumen down to Vancouver Harbor, and then out uh, through the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Strait of Georgia to the Pacific. Um, so you know these are you know huge projects, and in the case of the Northern Gateway project, it involved punching a pipeline through an area that, that did not have any existing pipeline infrastructure and then bringing this pipeline out to Kitimat where uh, they would start shipping um, large uh, tankers full of bitumen out through a number of small channels that go through a, an archipelago um, all along the BC coast and then out uh, to Asia and possibly down to parts of the United States. And the, the major justification for this was that it would create a tidewater access for um, the, the tar sands, which would allow them to get a more competitive price compared with what they were getting selling into the United States, which essentially has a bit of a ca captive market for the oil sand production right now. Um, when we look at Northern Gateway, it, it introduced the potential for a huge change in the northwest coast of, of Vancouver, of, of, um, of British Columbia. I mean, this, this is an area which is spectacular. Uh, it's largely undeveloped. Uh, what development there is is quite concentrated, and it has certainly not involved any kind of oil tankers in the past. Uh, there have been tankers, there have been shipping of aluminum in the past, but, but, but at relatively 
uh, low frequency compared to what was projected here. Here we were looking at large tankers going out you know, on a, on a biweekly basis, and in addition to that, there'd be tankers associated with liquefied natural gas production. And, and there were a number of concerns that came with this. So um, the, the shipping itself was viewed as a hazard uh, both to the to the um, to, to the, the mammal sea mammal population, not just orca whales, but actually particularly humpback whales um, in the area. But but additionally, we're viewed as potentially disrupting herring fisheries um, and and other types of fisheries, quite apart from the problems that come with any accidents. Uh, I mean, these tankers carry with them a large amount of noise pollution. Um, even when they're traveling slowly, they can potentially kill a whale. A lot of this was 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 premised on the idea that you know they would have have to have lookouts for whales. They'd have to have extra uh, vessels traveling along with them to be lookouts for whales. But but in the end, everyone recognized that this created real risks for the humpback and orca populations in the area. Um, you know, additionally, from the the point of view of the the nations in the area, including Gitgatla. It is absolutely amazing, and this became clear during the, the National Energy Board hearings, which were the hearings that inquired into the environmental effects um, that were conducted, that, that, that the people in this area are still hugely dependent upon um, the food taken from the waters around them. Um, you know, the National Energy Board actually sat in the Gitgatla community, which is situated on a remote island called Dolphin Island. Um, you can only get there by boat and float plane. Um, uh, it's not easily accessible from Prince Rupert, particularly if the weather comes in. Um, and over a period of four or five days, there were dozens of elders and community members who testified. And, 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 and in, in many ways, their evidence was demonstrated by the fact that what most of us ate were seafood, herring roe and kelp, all kinds of urchins, uh, salmon, sea lion, all sorts of, of sea mammals, which the evidence showed provided anywhere from 50 to 90 percent of the food for the people in these areas. And Gitgatla was not the only community that reported that kind of, of consumption of seafood. And you know, this, this area is not that far from where the Exxon Valdez went down. And th- these communities were profoundly concerned that, that not only would, could, did they uh, face risks from the ordinary operations of these tankers, but but they were looking at um, like like unquantifiable risks in the event that a that a, a, a spill occurred. Um, and and you know while there was all kinds of evidence about how unlikely a spill would be or how it could be contained, in, in the end, you know the evidence was clear, at least from the point of view of the First Nations, that um, that that they really did not have a plan that could realistically deal with a spill. Largely, they, the hope was there wouldn't be a spill and that uh, if there was a spill, they'd clean it up as best as they could, but they couldn't tell if the bitumen would sink or if the bitumen would float. They didn't really have a plan of what it would, they would do if it sank. Um, you know, the area is a very stormy area. Um, you know, they largely banked on being relying, relying upon booms in case it did uh, float. And, and of course, they couldn't say that the booms would be successful if, if the area was, was stormy. So, uh, you know, the, the, from the point of view of these nations is that they saw themselves as being asked to take, you know, what amounted to an existential risk to their communities for the benefit of, of getting a better price per barrel for bitumen. 
and and, and this was simply not acceptable. Now, now ultimately, um, you know, the National Energy Board recommended approving this project. It went to the federal cabinet under the old um, government here. Uh, they ordered the National Energy Board to go ahead and approve it, uh, and then the First Nations and a number of of um, companies, uh, a num- number of environmental groups, challenged the decision. And the First Nations were successful in the Federal Court of Appeal, essentially on the basis that the government had not properly dealt with the the, the consultation requirements that the Aboriginal title and Aboriginal rights of the First Nations, who, who said, look, you just can't put this stuff across our territory without our permission, um, were dealt with. Uh, the court said that the, there hadn't been adequate consultation, the government hadn't made a genuine effort to understand their rights, hadn't made a genuine effort to respond to the issues that had been raised, and, and, and then they sent the matter back to the federal government. Now, fortunately for, the, for, for Gitgatla and the other nations on the coast, um, the uh, uh, the government had changed by then, and and because of the the unique character of the northwest coast, uh, the new government, the the Trudeau government, declined to approve the project, and so uh, the project has essentially been put out of its misery and and terminated. But of course, they did approve other projects, and I think we'll probably talk about that in a bit. But but this was a, a and again a huge fight, um, very costly. It was supported. Heavily by a number of First Nations who, you know, had developed businesses over the years and essentially dedicated most of their economic resources to fighting this fight. On many cases, on the order of millions of dollars. In the cases of, you know, what what are really quite poor uh, communications, um, and um, um, and as a result, um, you know, but then also supported by again by Raven who who did a heroic job of, of raising funds to support the court case. Um, I, I have to say there are not many First Nations um, that have the resources to, to mount these kind of battles. I mean, it's one of the great ironies of, of this area of law where you are dealing with, you, you know, what the courts have completely, continuously called, you know, like important uh, constitutional rights that go right to the very foundation of Canada uh, but at the same time, the hurdles that they've raised to making having these rights uh, recognized in court and defended uh, place an insurmountable burden on nations that largely are are destitute or close to destitute, largely because of the government's refusal to respect their rights. Um, and if it's not for you know nations like Gitgatla and, and Heisla who are are willing to take the money they do have and invest in these fights, and organizations like Raven who raise money to support these fights. Um, you know the the types of battles that had to be undertaken are just simply unsustainable. I mean they couldn't be handled on a pro bono basis because the government has just made them so difficult to um, to 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 manage. But. Um, but 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 there are good news stories out there, and and the battle against the Northern Gateway Enbridge project is is one of those, in in that um, you know a very sustained effort over a number of years, successfully derailed, um, uh, de- derailed that project, and at least has protected the Northwest Coast, the Great Bear Rainforest, um, and and the people who who still rely upon these waters to feed their communities. That's great to hear, but it, it is unfortunate that the court system, and, and this is not unique to Canada, it's it's everywhere, that even if you have rights on paper, it is 
so hard to effectuate them. The costs and, and the fact that everything takes so much time, that is one of the problems of our, um, of, of our court system. But we, so it, thankfully, we won't be getting the Northern Gateway pipeline, but Trudeau's government also said they weren't going to do the Kinder Morgan pipeline. But it seems now that they're changing their mind and an approval has been given for the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Does this not affect the BC coast again? So actually, the, it's, it's important to, uh, uh, you know, this goes into Canadian politics, is both with respect to the Kinder Morgan pipeline and the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, um, the federal government, the, the, the Liberal Party and Trudeau's party in campaigning actually played their cards quite close to their chest um, with respect to their position on those two pipelines. They, they essentially said they wanted to see the processes go through to an end. They indicated that they wanted to look at whether the processes could be improved to better take into account First Nations concerns. But, but there was always fear uh, during the election and after the election that, that, that essentially we would see a, um, a grand bargain, in a sense, being struck within the, the government uh, to uh, approve some pipelines while rejecting other pipelines. And, um, and, and the sad reality is, is that, that that is what has happened um, you know, in the case of Keystone, the the the, the liberals actually the, the approvals were already in place, and the and the Liberal Party had said that they would actually work if the with the with the U.S. government if the U.S. government uh, approved them, which has obviously now happened with uh, Mr. Trump taking power. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, with the case of Keystone, they said uh, sorry, with the case of the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, the Kinder Morgan project, they said they would wait and see, and they did implement a. Um, uh, an additional consultation process with First Nations, um, and but but in the end, yes, they have approved it. And I think, to some extent, they've kind of done the reverse of what's happened in North Dakota. In North Dakota, you see uh, a, a a settler community expressing objections about threats to its environment, and and the pipeline there being diverted to a First Nations community. In in, in Canada, we've seen a. Uh, you know, a large First Nations uproar on the North Coast, having a project diverted largely into areas that are settled, although there are, of course, very important First Nations in the Vancouver area and along the, the coast. Um, in terms of, of the areas that are threatened, is that the, these vessels will not be traveling uh, near the Northwest Coast. They'll be much more focused down towards Vancouver and Victoria, uh, you know, and so there'll be there'll be a greater hazard to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, um, Strait of Georgia, Puget Sound, and these areas. But but they very much carry substantial risks. Um, and and you know the government has largely said, and the industry has largely said these are pre-existing risks. Um, you know, there's already tanker traffic in this area, which does distinguish it from the Northwest Coast. But but we're moving from a situation where there's one tanker a week to I think it's going to be one tanker a day. And uh, there have been a series of legal challenges commenced by a number of First Nations in the Vancouver area along the course of the pipeline, and um, as well as a number of uh, environmental groups. And, uh, you know, we'll see how these play out over the next few months. Um, um you, you know, we, we we expect that these will be, you know, a major battle and um, anybody who who would be willing to bet money on their outcome would be a braver person than I would be. That's that's for sure.
So in terms of the battle that's happening with the Kinder Morgan pipeline, the impetus for two declarations in 2010 was the Northern Gateway Pipeline and the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. And numerous nations on the West Coast uh, signed and then later numerous more adhered to the Coastal First Nations Declaration and Save the Fraser Declaration to save the Fraser watershed. And this prohibits the movement of crude oil through Indigenous lands, including both infrastructure and transport. So you were just discussing the crude oil tankers, they're prohibited, as well as the pipelines. Now, in these legal battles, how what, what is the legal impact of the declaration? Well, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, another substantial difference between the Enbridge project and the um, uh, and and what's happened with Kinder Morgan is that Kinder Morgan has done, uh, you know, for better or for worse, and obviously some nations will say for better, you know, have done has have have undertaken a much better engagement with many of the First Nations. I mean, by by no means are the First Nations along. Um, the Strait of Juan de Fuca or the Strait of Georgia unified in their views on what should happen to um, the, um, with respect to the Kinder Morgan project. Uh, you know, there have been various agreements reached with certain First Nations, including agreements around um, spill response and financial benefits and such like that, which um, are, are focused on the First Nations more potentially effective. I mean, Enbridge always said it had signed a large number of agreements, but but the general sense is, is that it appears that they'd signed agreements with more peripheral uh, nations um, along the the route, and so uh, you know I I think that one of the complicating factors in the in the Kinder Morgan um, process is that a number of First Nations you know are taking the position that that in fact they are willing to consent given the assurances they've been given about spill response and environmental protection and financial benefits. So, um, you know, because these declarations don't say just no crude, but in many cases indicate, of course, that it's it's without the consent of First Nations, without, you know, proper assurances to First Nations. And, and you know, one thing that, that often comes up in these situations is that, you know, First Nations are independent. They They are independent of each other and they are independent of the environmental groups that they work with and in some cases independent of the law firms they work with and um, you know there have been quite a range of decisions made about the Kinder Morgan project and I'm sure that that will end up featuring in the court cases that get fought so um, you know to some extent um, Kinder Morgan has has tried to be more they've tried to learn some of the lessons that come from the mistakes that were made by Enbridge. Now, that being said, um, you know, the, the, the most directly affected nations, in, in my view, are likely uh, the Tsleil-Waututh and the Squamish, who are right in the, in, in, you know, the Burrard Inlet area, so around Vancouver. And, and they are both, they both remain quite opposed to the project and, and, are, and have started legal proceedings against them. And, and Kinder Morgan has not been able to successfully address their concerns. So, you know, this this is going to present a very difficult um, um, matrix of of issues for the court to deal with. I understand that the Conservative Harper government, before uh, the current Liberals took power, via two budget omnibus actions, pretty much gutted federal environmental law in Canada, and that now Aboriginal title and treaty rights, which are constitutional rights, 
are at the forefront of environmental litigation in Canada, and you were successful in representing the Miccosukee Cree First Nation in challenging the federal government's decision to decrease its environmental role uh, without consulting the First Nations. Now, may you please explain more about the claims in this case, the precedent it's set, and specifically its impact upon environmental litigation in Canada? So I can answer that. Um, so there, and I have an update for you on this as well. But um, th- I'll just briefly describe a bit about the client. So Mikasu, this was a case that was brought by Mikasu Cree First Nation, and Mikasu is um, a signatory to Treaty Eight, which is one of the uh, historic treaties, and they are located in northeastern Alberta. And as you pointed out in 2012, the Harper government dramatically changed Canada's role in uh, assessing and managing resource development and and did it through these two budget implementation acts, bills C-38 and C-45. And those omnibus bills made uh, changes to to dozens of statutes, including this key environmental uh, laws, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, the Fisheries Act, the Species at Risk Act, and the Navigable Waters Protection Act. Um, And and the effect of the changes uh, really were to quite dramatically uh, reduce both the frequency and the depth of federal environmental assessments and reduce um, protections over water and fish and resources in the traditional territories of First Nations, including our client, Mikasu. And Canada did not consult uh, with any First Nations when developing the changes to this law and took the position that it was not uh, obligated, legally obligated, to consult. Um, so in 2012, Mikasu applied for judicial review of Canada's decision to make these changes to environmental laws without consultation. And this case really raises a very um, significant question uh, and for First Nations um, generally about whether the Crown has a legal constitutional duty to consult when it's considering changes to legislation that could uh, adversely impact treaty rights. And it's a question that's not been squarely addressed by any court. We know, of course, that Canada, that the Crown has a duty to consult with respect to project-specific impacts, but the the issue of legislative action has has not been decided. So, in 2014, the federal court um, ruled and in Mikasu's favor and found that the Crown did breach its duty to consult with Mikasu when the bills were introduced and did have a duty to consult uh, when the bills were introduced into Parliament. Canada then appealed that decision and argued that legislative action is essentially immune from any judicial review. So that case went to the Federal Court of Appeal, and and Mikasu also uh, had a cross-appeal because of where the first court placed the the trigger of the duty and said it was when the bills get introduced into Parliament, and Mikasu said it should be at an earlier point in the lawmaking process. So that case actually was heard by the Federal Court of Appeal, and just before Christmas, uh, the Court of Appeal made its decision and granted Canada's appeal and dismissed Mikasu's cross-appeal. And its decision turned on this issue of whether the ministers, when they're directing their departments to develop legislation, are really acting as policymakers or as legislatures. 
and the court agreed with Canada that the, those directions to develop legislation was a parliamentary matter, and the court shouldn't interfere uh, with that. So the court found that it had no jurisdiction to actually review the action and that there was no duty to consult with respect to legislative action. Now, Mikasu has just um, a couple weeks ago, in fact, filed an application for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada. So if leave is granted, then this will be a, a very important appeal for the law of consultation for First Nations, and as well as those, I would say, who are concerned with environmental justice. Um, the appeal court's decision now sets the legal precedent that the Crown is not required to consult with First Nations in the lawmaking process. And so for our clients, that's hugely problematic. Legislative change can, of course, result in very wide-reaching and long-lasting adverse effects on their constitutional rights. Um, and, and given that you know, consultation does create these legally, a legally enforceable process that allows First Nations to raise their concerns with decision makers. Um, the decision, I would say, does have an effect on those that are engaged in environmental justice issues, that the effort of Indigenous people to participate in government policies on environmental issues are, are often closely aligned with others with similar objectives. So, you know, the constitutional mandate to have Indigenous participation in lawmaking can really serve the interests of, of those groups as well. But for now, we have to wait and see if the uh, Supreme Court of Canada will hear Mikasu's appeal. Oh, I very much hope so. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're in good company. <laughs> very, very important, and it's really eviscerating their rights if the government has no duty to consult because they can change legislation. I'm, and I, it seems that legislative authority is now somehow above constitutional authority, but then maybe I'm misunderstanding. But with respect to uh, the treaty rights and Aboriginal title, do you believe, particularly with this unfortunate appeals case that uh, just came through. Is the area of law in Canada with respect to Indigenous rights complying with Canada's international obligation with respect to its Indigenous populations? So I think that's a really interesting question. And we saw this, we did see a significant development that in in this Chilcolton Aboriginal title claim uh, case uh, recently that was um, decided that I think, you know, raises or at least enhances Canada's commitments to honor some of the international uh, human rights obligations that we see in international instruments. And, and uh, you know, it, it might be worthwhile just, just saying something about that case. So this was the Aboriginal title case that came out of B.C., and it was a significant decision because it was the first time that um, the court had formally declared that Aboriginal title existed, and so that was obviously cause for major celebration. Um, and but I think that it does have aside. There was something significant about that case in that the court uh, made it clear that Aboriginal title isn't restricted to small, intensive, intensively used sites. That the crown could uh, that 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 you could have title that extended to large areas that the First Nation regularly and extensively used when Crown asserted sovereignty. So that was a major development in the case. But the other significant development that goes to your point, I think, uh, and also ties in with some of the other um, 
other consultation case law is really, and, and, and Canada's international commitments, is the requirement that the government seek and in some cases obtain consent before interfering with Aboriginal rights or title. And so this, this is, a, you know, really emerges, though, I think, in the makes it very clear in the Supreme Court decision of Chilcotin that if Aboriginal title, as it was in that case, is proven, then the Crown must seek consent before taking action from uh, from Aboriginal title holders. And without consent, then the Crown has to justify any of its interference, which the court made very clear is a is an extremely difficult burden. So I think that that decision does advance recognition of Indigenous human rights within the international human rights system in and, and really kind of a couple ways. One, I think we see comments throughout the court's decision that signals that the objectives that um, UNDRIP is seeking to achieve are questions that the court recognizes um, underlie Aboriginal law today. That is, that the court made it very clear in that case that what is at stake is justice of Aboriginal groups and their descendants and the reconciliation between the group and broader society. And I also think, you know, secondly, that when you know, UNDRIP has specific provisions that relate to Indigenous rights and lands and resources, environmental protection, uh, free um, prior and informed consent. And so what we see specifically on that last point in the Chukulton case is the court repeatedly emphasizing the constitutional requirement for obtaining Indigenous peoples' consent. So I think to sort of answer your question that the law is now evolving in such a way, even beyond the title context, where First Nations are demanding in accordance with Canadian law um, and international law that resource extraction activities can't occur without uh, adequate consultation and their free prior and informed consent of the affected Indigenous groups. And, and we see our clients pushing policy and legal frameworks to really develop this requirement in a way that the governments are required to put processes in place that will allow for meaningful input from Indigenous groups um, and a process for seeking consent. And, and, and that clearly emerges in, from the Supreme Court of Canada's um, decision in, in Chilcolton. So, so I think this consent issue is a critical issue that Canada has to engage with, um, both uh, politically and um, under the rulings of our highest court, as well as what's required by international law. And I think that that's an issue that's going to continue to play out in our, in our legal and political landscape. I'm, I'm sure my colleague Robert um, probably has some things to say about this, too. I don't know. Robert, did you want to comment? I think the listeners are going to be exhausted yeah. from, from, from me on this point because I think you've, you've summarized it nicely. But, but I think the observation I'll make is, is actually one that's not really a law observation, is that the experience with the Harper government you know, illustrates, and I think it's the same thing as what's happened in the United States right now, is how it's important not just to work on the law front, but also to be very vigilant on the politics front as well. Uh, I mean, in Canada, uh, you saw a government uh, elected to a strong majority despite having a minority uh, position, and, and really a, a minority position that, that was isolated in terms of its support. It's, and um, it was able to wreak havoc um, 
and and in, and on the flip side, I think to some extent, um, what happened politically is is that they lost the election in part because of the fact that they were so insistent on running roughshod over things like the environmental concerns of Aboriginal people and also non-Aboriginal people, um, that they were so cavalier in their uh, treatment of Indigenous people as well as members of, of civil society, um, that, that, they, that they actually managed to reassemble a bit of the liberal, liberal coalition that had been dismantled in previous years. But, um, you know, the, 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 the question of whether the courts are going to be willing to keep the government in, in line with what I think are its constitutional obligations as well as, um, as its international obligations you know, it's a difficult question. I mean, courts, the Canadian courts particularly worry about the legitimacy. Uh, I mean, the Constitution's relatively new compared to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, there's a longer history of, of deferring to Parliament, and, and even in the modern case law, you see that coming up. And, and so I do think this is one of the reasons why it's important to build bridges between Indigenous groups and members of civil society, NGOs, and other groups um, to, to really help keep the political side of the equation in line as well as the legal side. And I do definitely want to go back to this point as to grassroots action um, concomitant with uh, court action. But back to Kerry's point with respect to consent, it seems that you can't really get consent if you don't have effective consultation because you don't have proper consent if you're not informed, which is why the Mikasu really need to be allowed to argue in front of the Canadian Supreme Court. And I, and I hope that they do. Um, but be, before we touch on grassroots actions, I do just want to ask a question. Now, we've talked about the climate impacts of Alberta tar sands and the pipelines that are connected to it, the environmental impacts, the, the evisceration of Indigenous rights, um, the health impacts. But I also want to touch on the issue with foreign workers and, and the impact on labour rights, because the the human rights footprint of this project is so vast and so prolific. It, it now is also impacting labor rights, lowering wages, lowering safety conditions. I understand that um, in the beginning, the foreign work visas, uh, which allow uh, foreigners to come in merely to work at the behest of their employer, and if they're terminated, they have to leave. Please correct me if I'm wrong on this. These were really just meant to be used as a stopgap to provide labour while there was a shortage, but now it seems they're being utilised to avoid collective bargaining agreements and safety requirements. How is the employment of foreign workers affecting Canadian wages and the safety of both Canadian and foreign workers? So that's a very large and, and extremely contentious question. Um, I, I think actually in the oil sands context, um, it's, it's hard to actually make general statements about how it's affected wages overall, largely because until the recent downturn, um, the development of the the tar sands and the related facilities was just an immense suck on on labor throughout Canada. Um, they and by a suck I mean that the demand far outstripped the supply of labor, uh, particularly for higher job higher paying jobs. And so, uh, you know, in fact, um, there was a large draw on employees from Newfoundland, from New Brunswick, from parts of British Columbia, who in many cases would be paid to uh, commute. Uh, on a bi-weekly basis um, 
you know, between you know places as distant as St. John's, Newfoundland, and Fort McMurray. Um, you know, there's a there's a small piece of trivia which says that that since the 1970s, Fort McMurray has been the second largest city of Newfoundlanders in Canada, um, despite being you know almost 4,000 miles from Newfoundland. Um, you know, in in the Fort McMurray area, though, where you did see um, foreign workers playing a much larger role, were actually at the lower end service jobs. Um, you know, so the restaurants, Tim Hortons, McDonald's, um, and and there were some reports of real labor abuses of those people there. And and from the perspective of our clients, um, in in many ways that created real difficulties because one of the sad um, realities for many First Nations is because of the way that their education has been treated historically. I mean, there's a very bad history of of the residential school system in Canada, which, you know, not only was abusive because of its cultural effects, because of the sexual abuse that went on, but but also in many cases because it offered a poor education and poor training to people. Uh, you you see communities that have had long-term unemployment, long-term disengagement from the workforce, and and for for some people they were successful in getting some of the higher-paying jobs, uh, but but in many cases they weren't competitive for against foreign workers for. Um, some of the entry-level jobs in the service industry, where where they could have gotten a toehold uh, in the economy and and use that to 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 pull themselves up into the better-paying parts of the economy, and, and so you know the the foreign workers issue has had a real mixed effect. I mean, it's 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 filled at least while the oil sands were really developing quickly, it filled quite a few jobs that, that seem to be otherwise going begging, but I think it let the companies off the hook uh, in terms of of um, um, in, in terms of really engaging with the First Nations communities in the area and making sure that, that not just the people who were able to take on some of the higher paying jobs benefited, but but that that, that there was there were much more widespread benefits to the whole community. Uh, I, ironically I actually think the bigger danger in the oil stands or tar sands area is from automation. Um, you know, once these these facilities are built, um, you know, the the major type of work up there is driving trucks um, and and operating uh, heavy equipment, uh, digging equipment, um, and at least in the case and 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 in many ways the justification for these plants because because they get huge breaks in terms of royalties from the government. It is the positive employment effects they're supposedly going to generate. Um, but now they're talking that at some of these facilities, they're looking that with the with the advent of driverless vehicles, that you might see them being almost completely automated um, within 10 years. I mean, that's certainly the target that Shell has for one of its facilities, uh, which would mean for, for people like the Mikasu or Beaver Lake Cree, they could get the worst of both worlds. They could get the 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 environmental devastation, but then also be cut off from the environmental from the economic benefits, as 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 many of the core jobs they could have hoped to have had uh, were lost in the short term to to foreign workers, but in the longer term to automation. It's terrible, and I do want listeners that don't know about the Alberta tar sands to go on NASA's site and look at the satellite images of this Stygian <coughs> landscape. It doesn't even 
look like it's from our planet. Now, I want to ask one final question, and you touched on it before, Robert. You said that we have these court cases, and and we've talked about how, how long it takes to just get to court in the first place to plead your merits. And while this is continuing, the the operations are continuing and they're escalating and at a rapid rate. And considering that a lot of these projects are on Indigenous lands, do you foresee an increase in grassroots resistance from Indigenous peoples as well as environmental groups? And what kind of resistance, including, say, boycotts, but not exclusive to it, do you believe would have the most impact? There's a couple of things I think we can expect to see. Um, And I think we... There's real potential seeing this with the Energy East project. Uh, I think that in, in some of the areas that are just being open to oil sands projects, that, that there's, we're likely to see this. But, um, you know, at, about four years ago, uh, maybe even less actually, uh, there was a, a real um, intense of indigenous grassroots movement that rose up quite independent of, of First Nations political leadership called the Idle No More movement, where um, you essentially saw a large number of spontaneous uh, round dances. You saw occupations of federal lands, establishment of of protest camps, hunger strikes, um, which brought a huge amount of attention and a huge amount of embarrassment to the government of the day and to a number of companies. And, you know, while to some extent that has tamped down recently, um, it, it 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 really was just one manifestation of uh, of a huge current in indigenous communities of of protest and of refusal to accept um, imposed decisions from you know what they see as settler and colonial governments um, and you know unless the governments are responsive to the demands of First Nations unless the courts can provide real remedies. Um, you know, First Nations are not just going to give up. Um, I mean, the history of Canada is replete with stories of change that have been driven by First Nations people in any number of ways by them, you know, without the assistance of courts and without the assistance or the voluntary assistance of governments, by them just refusing to accept um, the, the, accept the, the changes that, that governments have proposed to impose on them. Um, so, so you know, you know the government the, the, essentially First Nations are given giving I think the courts a chance to show that they can really make a difference. If the courts don't make a difference, um, it, it, the, the First Nations will uh, will, as they have throughout their history, turn to other tools to make an effect. And 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 it's always been surprising. I won't project. I won't predict what First Nations people will do uh, because I think every time. You look and you say, "Oh, I know what they're going to do." Um, they come up with incredibly clever and incredibly creative ways of pushing back against uh, uh, against settler society. I, I think that that in a larger sense, and in some ways, you know, what's happening in the United States right now is is galvanizing this. But but I think we're seeing it with the Kinder Morgan uh, project in particular. Um, you know, there are alliances being built between indigenous people and civil society, and in some cases, local governments. Um, you know, the city of Burnaby, in just outside of Vancouver, has been one of the leading opponents to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, and the city of Vancouver has been very uh, opposed to it as well. 
and I, I think we're going to see a strengthening of of uh, coordinated efforts between NGOs and First Nations, uh, NGOs and local government, First Nations and local government. I, th- I think the thing that's going to have to get sorted out, which is I think in the past and many times, um, uh, you know, NGOs or local governments had viewed themselves as the leaders of the process. I, I think in in this day and age, Indigenous people are going to want their place as the true leaders of these movements to be recognized and dealt with. Um, and 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 I think we're going to see that. Um, now, my hope is is that to some extent our system can redeem itself and show that it can be responsive to the needs of First Nations, that it will actually enforce uh, the rights that they've been promised, that they will make something real out of the promise of Section 35. I, I think many First Nations are patiently waiting to see if this is going to happen. Oh, I hope it does. Uh, Well, thank you very, very much for your time, Robert and Kerry, and all the best with your cases. They're very important, both for Indigenous rights as well as environmental protections in such a beautiful, pristine country. And I very much appreciate your time. Thank you very much for your interest, and I I thank your listeners for their patience. Yeah, thanks for your attention to these really important issues for our clients. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.